Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with not just one, but two amazing guests, Jamila M. Dawson and August McLaughlin. And today we are going to be talking about their new book, With Pleasure, Managing Trauma Triggers for More Vibrant Sex and Relationships. Let's go one at a time. Hello, Jamila. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Zach. Jamila M. Dawson is a licensed sex and relationship therapist, writer, and educator. She runs her private psychotherapy and consulting business, Fire and Flow Therapy, while also teaching as adjunct faculty at Antioch University, Los Angeles. She has lectured at the University of Southern California, the ASEC Summer Institute, and collaborated with a variety of sex therapists and educators, as well as with BuzzFeed, Playboy, Harper's Bazaar, and other media outlets. And hello, August. Welcome to the show. Hi, Zach. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for coming on. And August McLaughlin is a nationally recognized journalist and host and producer of the podcast Girl Boner Radio, a story-driven podcast where she explores sexual empowerment and pleasure with a broad range of guests. Her articles have been featured by Cosmopolitan, The Washington Post, Salon, HuffPost, Live Strong, and more. Her 2018 book, Girl Boner, The Good Girl's Guide to Sexual Empowerment, was featured in the New York Times and called Equally Fun, Risque, and Informative by Publishers Weekly. How are we doing today? Wonderful. Really glad to be here. Yeah, same. Thanks so much for coming on. You're both very busy people doing amazing work in the world. So I really want to thank you for taking time out of your busy days to come on to the show and talk about this collaboration of yours, this new book, With Pleasure. So I'm curious about how this started and how you two began this collaboration. I always love when August starts the the story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it kind of works because it matches the journey. I'll I'll pass the baton to you as we move along. Um, Yeah, so a few years ago, I was going through a really dark time personally and experiencing really intense uh, trauma flares and periods of feeling very triggered. And so... Mm. I, as a writer, tend to think in books and creative projects and works. And as I started to find my way to a place where I felt much more informed and I was better able to care for myself and get the support I need, I felt this strong desire to talk about what it's like to be to be triggered and to really offer the support that mm. I found myself madly like Googling for and had trouble finding. Mm. Now, because of the work I do, I see a natural link between trauma and sexuality. However, I know that a lot of folks just in the general public, publishers tend to think of 
you know, why is this person writing this book? I then thought, you know, it really should have more, even more of a focus on pleasure and sex and relationships, which I had mm. included, but it wasn't kind of at the forefront. And originally the book was going to be called Triggered. Then a couple months later, I ended up interviewing Jamila in the podcast studio. This was, I think, 2019. And we talked about trauma and pleasure and the ways that she was articulating the challenges and also the importance of pleasure. I just found myself so mesmerized and grateful for the work that she had been doing and that she continues to do. And I could I could not stop hearing her voice in this book. And so mm. even in the span of just our hour interview, I went from like, I really want to be present here. And I also want to ask her if I could at least interview her for this book. That very quickly became, I want her to write the foreword. And then I was like, I think, I think this is her book. And so I, <laughs> I then reached out to Jamila, who barely knew me, and uh, asked her to join me in this wild ride. Right, Jamila? Mm. That's exactly what happened. And um, I got, you're very, you know, I had a great experience with you um, doing the podcast. Like, you know, you were professional and thoughtful and great conversation. And I left it at that. Mm. And then when you contacted me to do the foreword for the book, I thought, oh, well, this is a great idea for a book and happy to write the foreword. And then when you asked me to co-write it with you, that's when I definitely had a kind of, oh, I don't know. Because uh, I had just had an experience with a very well-known sex educator that was racist and was very upsetting, mm. um, triggering. And um, I was not in a space to really kind of trust, especially somebody who seemed like that other person. And mm. so um, August and I, we had a very transparent conversation. And um, it was enough for me to want to take the next step. And so we began this process and it's been phenomenal on a lot of different levels. Wow. Amazing. It's amazing to hear from August how important books are in the world. And I also feel that personally that books help us make sense of the world and that so too in writing, it helps us make sense of what is going on with our life. And it sounds like both of you have very personal experiences with the topic. Yes. Yes, both as both personally and then as a clinician, um, and I write about it in kind of the, the first part of the book was, you know, therapists are trained of we want symptom reduction, we want, you know, if we get rid of these elements, then the client will be healthy. And mm -hmm. that's not always so just because we're no longer suffering from insomnia or panic attacks. That doesn't mean we're okay, or having a life. Um, again, that's a pleasurable, exciting, interesting life. And in my own clinical work, it was exhausting to just focus on the trauma. Like my whole world was becoming just how do I help them not be traumatized? And that's, again, not a place to live from. Mm. And so this book became a chance to put some things that I had noticed into action mm -hmm. and share that with August. So again, thank you for this wonderful work that you are doing and helping people with these issues, Jamila. And... It's funny because I'm glad you didn't name the book Triggered. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. We are too now. We really are. <laughs> yeah, because people think are gonna, it's going to get political. It's going to get into this big thing. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have to do with anything wrong with the term Triggered, but how it's been sort of manipulated and used. 
And let's get into this idea of trauma and particularly what misunderstandings people have about it. Because when I would say most people think about trauma, they think, they think about extreme events like a soldier who's coming back from war with PTSD. But we're learning a lot about what is sometimes called big trauma, what is sometimes called small trauma, and how it affects all areas of our life. So first off, what is trauma to you and what are some common examples of it that most people might not realize? I'll start with just a, a thought about kind of the hierarchy of trauma. One of the things that we wanted to avoid was kind of having a hierarchy of trauma in the book while also pointing out that there's personal trauma, there is systemic and oppressive trauma, there there are all these different types. And one thing that a lot of folks struggle with, and, and certainly I have struggled with, is the idea of this thing that happened to me or these things that I went through were not quote unquote that bad. And therefore, mm. you know, I don't really need help or I don't need support. So um, we wanted everyone to feel welcome, regardless of where they are also in their own journey with managing trauma, which is a term actually that I learned from Jamila. It's not that we go through trauma and it's over. It's that we are we are learning to manage the trauma that we are carrying because of, you know, whatever's happened to us. Mm -hmm. And there is, uh, Zach, the point you brought up around the misunderstanding of trauma or that it's, again, these big or one-time events, you know, a car accident or war. And a lot of people either, A, don't want to feel victimized, mm -hmm. and so they don't want to call whatever they've experienced trauma that feels for some people, like they're being weak. Mm. And so we have, again, these ideas about strong people don't get traumatized and weak people do. And then we also have these ideas of, again, trauma being like these isolated big incidents. Mm -hmm. And it was so important to August and I to talk about, without necessarily having to say like big or little, but that there are all kinds of experiences, whether in the past or ongoing, like racism or transphobia or ableism, that compound and add to our trauma mm -hmm. and being triggered as you said it's been definitely used a little too loosely it is a physiological response where your executive functioning you are offline is the best way to, to put it you're not really in the present anymore mm. and your body has taken over in order to get you to the next moment mm. which may mean that you're in a flight response or a fight response or a fawn response or a freeze response mm that is what is happening. It's not being really, really, really upset. And so it's really important um, that people understand like it is a legitimate experience, but to distinguish it from other kinds of discomfort that occur. Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted, again, to, to make room for the different kinds of trauma that are out there, but be focused on the pleasure aspect as a way of managing and moving through mm. uh, these experiences. And so Triggered, for multiple reasons, was not the title <laughs> that we, <laughs> yes. we ultimately went with. Yeah. So, Jamila, I want to go a little bit deeper into what I'm hearing from you, because earlier you mentioned how, and this is a common critique of almost mental health in general and even physical health in general, that health is sort of defined as being devoid of symptoms. Yes. And you also mentioned how like strong people, and we have this idea of strong people as somebody who doesn't need help. 
And a lot of people think that because they don't have like something deep or they don't have a disorder that they don't need to go to therapy or receive help from a mental professional. So I'm curious, just combining these two ideas, like how do you think about creating more thriving and help for people and viewing a model of health that might be different than the common paradigm? Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that's the, the perfect word that we are it's critical to think in terms of paradigms. Um, a paradigm is a story. And if you're living in a paradigm that does not make true human sense, you're going to live into things that are not healthy and um, not expansive. And so my ideas about what wellness is and what mental health really is, is based on community, is based on relationship, which is really how we're, we're, we're designed to live in ongoing, expansive, and contractive relationships. Mm. Um, and so what I wish to kind of share with people is wellness is contextual. Mm-hmm. That somebody could be, um, could have a disability or could have, like, be overweight, quote unquote, overweight. But if they are in a community where they have care and they have connection and they have the things that we need for life, which is good food, a sense of safety, a sense of continuity, that actually is wellness. Mm. And there's some fascinating data that it is community and healthy relationships that are the best and biggest predictors of wellness, not these fragmented ideas that kind of American culture tends to feed us, Mm. that it's about a certain kind of level of fitness which is a frightening word when you think about it, fitness. Yeah. yeah. Right, of like who is fit to live. Mm-hmm. Survival of the fittest. Mm. Right, that are embedded again in our culture. Mm-hmm. So again, when I think of mental health and think of therapy, I'm like, my whole work is about how do I help you be in better relationship to yourself mm-hmm. and then others, not try to fix you to send you back out into an ill world. Mm. I love that. And it's such a different paradigm because there is this modern medicine that views a person as like an isolated entity or even a machine. We have to do these things. But I love your perspective of seeing ourselves as interconnected, interbeing individuals. And the strength of those community connections, relationship connections determines our health. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going back to the book, I found it was really amazing how it was organized and how each chapter is basically a statement that one might say when they have trauma. So you have, why is this happening to me? What is happening to me? How can I get my life back? And my question is, what about trauma makes a person this way? so lost and alone and almost disorganized. Mm. I can share my personal experience with that. Mm-hmm. When I was really struggling that that year I, I mentioned, I felt so isolated and alone and as though I was this sort of alien being. It was so perplexing to me mm-hmm. and when I would ask a question I of, of people, I, I made some attempts to reach out to people. And when they weren't received in ways that were helpful, I just shut myself down. I remember one mm-hmm. example, I reached out to a friend and I said, you know, I'm really having these extremely dark thoughts. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about death. Like I I shared just a few 
you know, dark adjectives around what I'd been thinking about without any specifics. And immediately, like without a beat, she said, that's a writer thing. We're just writers. And, <laughs> oh, you know, you know, just and like I just, Van Gogh. Oh. yeah, right. <laughs> right. 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 Just, yeah. You know, goes with the territory. Yeah, like no big deal. This is who you are. This is who we are. You know, um, Mm -hmm. another time I heard, but you have so much to be thankful for. Mm. And I was already telling myself that in a way of like, come on, you know, get get yourself together. Why are you not feeling grateful and happy and (laughs) joyful? Like what's wrong with you? And so I would search for these kinds of questions and topics online and, and wouldn't it took a long time for me to kind of find my way. Mm. And so that was one of the reasons we wanted to organize the book this way is because that is not a unique experience by any means. Mm-hmm. Now, did you, were you able to draw a correlation between the trauma and your feelings or how did that go? It was a very confusing path there for me. Mm-hmm. I know that for some folks, it's um, a more obvious, they are associating it with the event. In my case, I was having these trigger flare-ups. I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD. Um, It's more what what you would consider Mm. complex PTSD, although that's not like an official diagnosis yet because it wasn't one specific event, although there were several um, that kind of combined to to create these these experiences I was having. Um, But I... What happened first was I stopped taking uh, my medication for ADHD, and Mm. it took me almost 12 months to realize how much I had been suffering without it long before, like, all the trigger flares started to happen. And so it brought me back to my adolescence. I, I started to feel exactly the way I felt when I was having these raging, confusing hormones, and I felt like I could could not connect with the world. I had this swirly brain. It was it was really really painful. And while the f- feelings felt familiar because my brain was my chemistry was off balance or I guess that, that's how it how it felt. I I couldn't I couldn't get to a place where I realized that that was the issue. It's like a catch 22 in a way. And again, negative messaging led me there too because I'd been able to meditate for the first time in my life. Um prior to stopping Mm -hmm. taking my medication. And I went to this class and the teacher said, you know, if you take any sort of medications that are stimulants, then, you know, you don't get the same brain benefits from meditation. Mm. Yeah. And it was, it was one of those moments where part of me was like, how dare you say that? And the rest of me was like, what if she's right? Like, what if I can meditate what if I've already changed my brain? What if I have improved my brain? I no longer need this medication. And so I didn't even notice that when I stopped taking the medication, I stopped meditating instantly, like instantly. Mm. <laughs> um, so there were a lot of, a lot of things. Um, but then what ended up happening was uh, an event in my personal life um, unfolded while I was at a really, really dark place. Um, And again, I had gone to a physician who also told me my symptoms were probably just early menopause. Like I was just not getting the support that I I needed and trying so hard. Mm. It took me a long time to really connect it all to this time of my life that was so difficult um, earlier on. And, And once I had that epiphany, 
that, oh my goodness, that I've seen in other survivors too. Mm. I, I saw it in a documentary that I was watching about survivors of abuse. And what can happen is your timeline gets really mixed around in your head, sometimes as a protective mechanism. My brain was trying to help me, but I had not connected all these dots. And once I did, it was just like a flood. I just... I cried out all of my emotions at once. I mm. talked to my partner about it and he just held me for like hours. We went to go see a therapist and I just, and I, that was really critical for me wanting to write about this topic because again, not a unique situation. What a powerful story. And it's amazing the healing path that you have done. And I appreciate you sharing it both with our listeners and of course with the world. And I'm curious what our therapist has to say about it because I know some doctors and they go to med school and they learn about this disease has this symptom and they're like, awesome. And then they go to a patient and they're like, yeah, sometimes my belly hurts in the morning. <laughs> and they're like, uh, and there's a lot of things that are much more gray and vague than many people realize. So when I heard you say, I feel like I had a swirly brain. Right. I was like, I wonder what the clinical perspective of this is. So like when we talk about trauma and we talk about swirly brain, like what is happening physiologically? Well, it's really for, you know, everybody, as you said, it's going to be different, but they're, the body is both very varied as well as um, there are consistencies, which allow us to say, oh, it's more anxiety or it's more depression or it's more this. And while, um, Sometimes I think people can get too into medicalizing um, and uh, like, let's parse it all and have a label for every single thing. It can be very helpful to have a general idea of what's going on, of like these um, experiences tend to equal this. Um, so, for example, um, I will ask people, describe it in your own words, what you're experiencing. And so if somebody says, swirly brain and I often have like a stomach ache and my shoulders hurt a lot and I'm always just kind of not feeling okay kind of always paying attention to stuff and I don't know there's nothing wrong but I just I'm always looking around or feeling like I should be looking around those terms I end up translate into like okay that sounds more like anxiety um, and so it, it is this kind of, um, I, th I think of the DSM sometimes as kind of a Rosetta Stone. Mm -hmm. It is not perfect. Um, in fact, historically, it's been quite racist and homophobic. Um, but it, it does allow for shared language between a doctor and a therapist and a psychiatrist and all the other helping professionals. Um, but it, to me, it's actually really important to for people to put words to their experience. That can be kind of that first peace. And a lot of times people will say, they're like, I don't know if any of this is making sense. And I know this sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't. It does not sound crazy. It sounds like their body is trying to make sense of things, trying to deal, trying to get the body from moment to moment. The body just wants to continue to survive. Mm. And when I say the body, I'm also including the mind. Those are not separate. So if after kind of listening to somebody's kind of subjective experience, then I will be transparent with them around, mm -hmm. hey, it's sounding like um, this diagnosis lines up with this experience. Mm. What do you think of that? Um, and so my, um, I try to be very collaborative with my clients. And some people are very like 
feel great once they have a clear diagnosis like oh this is what that is i'm not just quote unquote crazy mm-hmm. and then others they're like ah oh, like now i i have this diagnosis and then we have to do some work around um what do they associate with that particular diagnosis mm-hmm. what some of the stigma maybe that they've seen or experienced um so it can be a roadmap it shouldn't be a cage so does that answer your question or was there Absolutely. I love that. I even love the metaphor that it's a roadmap and not a cage because I do know many people who do finally have some relief when they do get that diagnosis because they have the context and there's often, you know, a treatment plan associated with it. Right, right. There's information. It's not just a tsunami of either internal experience or just all this stuff that's out there. Like, you know, we joke about like commercials for different medications and it's like, <laughs> do you have breathing difficulties? Do you blink too much? Did your leg twitch? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I think so. I must have. And so, like, side effects may include living or death. And you're like, I don't know. So it can be very helpful to have, again, that anchor point. So we've talked about trauma and we've talked about different ways. It affects our lives and our being and our thinking. So let's shift to intimacy and the connection between the two. So how does our trauma get in the way of intimacy? So many ways, I think. Partially speaking to what August had said earlier, there can be that profound sense of isolation. Hmm. I am different or dirty or weird or something. People can have these these thoughts um, or they're showing up to sex and intimacy in a way that's confusing or scary to their partner, mm-hmm. which then makes that person feel even more odd or strange, or like they're the problem. I definitely come across that. And we talk about that a little bit in the book of people who think like, oh, if I could just be better and not be such a problem, then I can have a great relationship. Mm-hmm. And of course, that just makes people even more self-conscious about whatever they're experiencing. Um, so I, it comes up quite often where people finally come to, to treatment because there's a relational aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're nervous about how they're interacting with their, their kids or with their, their partner um, or other people that are close to them. So I really love your embrace that you're not crazy if you're experiencing these things that these things are normal and also that many people have these things they don't realize and you write this in your book and i just want to read it aloud for our listeners that you wrote when we've been activated our job is not to try to stop the triggers from ever cropping up again or to somehow fix ourselves so we won't experience negative effects ever again Our primary responsibility is to love ourselves through it as best we can. So what does loving ourselves through our triggers instead of trying to fix ourselves look like? Uh, I can share um, my experience with this one as well because that was really, really, really hard for me. Mm. I just wanted to get fixed. I wanted the triggers and the activation, I wanted it like surgically removed from my brain. <laughs> Just take it out so I can go on with my life. That's what I wanted. And I imagine Jamila has heard that before from more than one person that she's worked with. It's really, really challenging. And when you hear 
that that is not going to happen, one of the hardest things for me to hear was you may always feel triggered. Like mm. you may never go through the the triggers as the more that you take care of yourself and get the support you need, you can experience um, improvements in in these happenings. Like they may not be as intense. They may mm. not be as frequent. They may never go away. And I had to grieve that because I just, I mean, just thinking about it, I feel a little nauseated because just mm. th when I think about feeling triggered, especially when it was so recurrent for me, it was, it felt impossible. Like I felt like mm -hmm. I can't live like that. And what was so surprising to me was that truly when I simply, not simply, because it's, it's actually quite challenging, but it sounds simple. When you start with this is happening, there's a reason this is happening. Just with that kind of neutral message made a huge difference for me and also with my partner because before he had any understanding of what was going on, it was causing rifts between us because mm. he didn't know up from down or why all these things were happening either. And so for him to understand, oh, this is this is your you're having like a physiological like this is happening right now and being able to have someone else validate you and not try to just stop it as well because he also had to learn mm. to not try to stop it we were both just trying to like put up a cement wall around it or something and you can't oh that's so that piece that you two did for and with one another is so critical and that's and we we do we have partners and parents and again friends who they want to fix it they want to stop it too because it's painful to look at it's painful mm -hmm. to to know your your person is in significant distress but you cannot um this is a storm that's happening and you can't mm -hmm. stop a storm you shelter until it's over and then you pick up the pieces mm. and what's really Gorgeous is like a lot of times people, and I'm so excited for, for this, what you're doing, Zach, and getting this information out there. And what I'm seeing in other places is people becoming more fluent about how trauma works, um, and what mm -hmm. actually helps people. And so, um, as August said, when we go from make it stop, make it stop, there's nothing happening, or this is bad, get it together. If we move away from that into this is happening, how do I care for myself? What do I need from you? What do I need for myself? Then we can start building that storm shelter. And as August said, it does over time smooth out. Doesn't mean the storm might not happen, but they're not as severe. They don't happen quite as often. Yeah. And you now have like your shelter and, and then you make your shelter. You've got your lamps, you've got your blanket, you've got what you need, right? <laughs> like you build it over time so that you can withstand it. And that can lead to, again, a life. That's so well said. So maybe it's not like a tornado. It's just a little drizzle sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Right. And that's exactly it. That sometimes, you know, mm -hmm. I still, I manage depression and I get depressed. Mm. And that's changed from, um, oh, this is bad or this is shameful or I'm messing up or how can I possibly be a therapist if I also manage depression to okay, this is this too is part of me. Mm. And so how do I have integrity about how I tend to myself as well as support my clients to tend to themselves mm. in relation to mm. others? That is so lovely. And 
what you said about the shelter made me think of a really important shift that I've experienced and that I've seen many people, including the folks we interviewed for this book, there can be this beautiful transition where it's almost like you see the trigger flares, you see being activated, you see the storm as a cue to nurture yourself. Yes. And that is life-changing because when you stop shaming yourself for it, it can become its own kind of another layer on, t- on top of the trauma is to be beating yourself up for, I quote unquote, should not feel this way. Yeah, I love the metaphor because I am imagining preparing for that storm. You know, you get the raincoat on, the umbrella on, and then it doesn't affect you as much. Right, right. It's not quite as bad. And, you know, in any stone, you know, have, again, have some hot cocoa and, you know, whatever <laughs> you, like, you need to, like, ride it out. And I do these um, kind of ideas about, you know, if you're a grown up, that you're supposed to be in control. That is what we've been told about being a grown up. Mm-hmm. To be controlled, to be mature. And so we can have, when we're having these experiences that make us feel very young and very out of control and very uncertain, it kind of, we don't have a cultural frame for how to take that seriously. Mm. So I'd love to get more into how we can support our partners who are struggling with their trauma and during those times that they are triggered, because you do offer some nice scripts in your books for people to support their partners. So what are some things that we can do and say when our partner is going through the storm? And again, we might not understand exactly what it is that they're going through because we don't experience that ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, you can come up with your own language for it between the two people um, mm-hmm. or the partners of, you know, call it the storm or call it the thing or call it, give it a name. And then that makes it that much easier to speak about and say, see, the storm is, is coming. What do you need? Um, and sometimes people might not know what they need. And once the storm is over, having a conversation about, let's put some things in place. Do you need to be in a darkened room? Do you need to, like, go on a walk with me and we don't talk? Do you need to be held? Do you need to not be held? But to kind of come up with a menu of options. And I very mm-hmm. strongly consider or, or invite partners, their boundaries are critical, Sometimes um, partners can want their partner to get well. And it's like, well, what about this? And try this and do this. And, you know, I'll do it for you. That's not helpful. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important for if um, somebody is the partner of somebody who really is flaring a good deal of the time or even pretty regularly, it's important that they have their own support. That they have mm-hmm. the friends that they trust that they can go to or that they have their own therapy or that they have their own self-care practice, because it does, it's like if somebody is a, a physical caregiver, that caregiver needs to get tended to as well. So I'd love to go into intergenerational trauma, particularly amongst oppressed communities and how that might look different um, than what I might call the normal everyday trauma. Um You have in your book a lovely story of an indigenous woman who really had to unpack the generations of trauma before her. And even many of these oppressive systems uh, are continuing even today, especially depending on where you are in the world. So I'm curious, how does the path of healing differ for someone who does have generations of trauma before them and perhaps might even be still stuck 
in an oppressive system, society, or culture. This is always a, a topic that I get very heated and passionate about because it is one of these questions. The the trauma or the the potentially trauma-inducing circumstances don't stop. Right. For me as a Black woman, there is a risk every single day. Um, and for Beth in the book, that because of systemic issues that then become embedded in the family, there are always going to be these instances of potential trauma and then actual trauma that does happen. And so I, I think part of why I came to pleasure practices was as a way of not just surviving, but of trying to flow through what I know is going to happen. I know sooner or later another racist incident or another sexist incident is going to happen or for my clients, there is going to be another transphobic situation. It is not if, it is when. Mm -hmm. And I think we're only going to, again, cultivate a life worth living. And it's even more incumbent upon um, people who live under oppressive systems that we have to find our practices that remind us of our own humanity. Because the mm -hmm. larger culture is, not, A, not going to remind you of it and is actively seeking to um, annihilate it. And so how we stay human is how do I care for my body? How do I dance and sing with other people? Mm. What do I watch? What art do I put around my house that tells me that I am a full human mm. that becomes a sanctuary um, and a place of restoration from that which is outside waiting? And so with my, my clients who come from marginalized communities, that's a lot of the work of one to normalize their depression or their anxiety, their anger towards larger systems. So to normalize that, to figure out what is the particular, um, you know, is it, is it anxiety or depression or PSD that they're experiencing? And then how do we create daily, weekly or monthly practices that, again, I, I call it help them stay human? Um, in a world that, that seeks to dehumanize them all the time. I love that so much. You, mentioned, you said we are only going to cultivate a life worth living if we find the practices that affirm our humanity. So thank you both of you so much again for coming on to the show. And I have to ask you the question that I finished the show by asking all of my guests and I'll have to do it one at a time. So I'm going to start with Jamila since you were just speaking. What do you wish everyone knew about love? What I wish everybody knew about love was that it's a box word, meaning like inside, mm. I think are more um, your admiration or your respect, or your sense of playfulness with people. And I wish that people, when they said, I love you, that they could practice um, and put into action what they mean by that and let other people share what they mean by that. Beautiful. Mm. And August, what do you wish everyone knew about love? I think there can be a lot of pressure to just love yourself. And that's an important mission to cultivate self-love, of course. But I also think that feels like a really steep, daunting goal when you're in a, a dark place, kind of like how we say, love your body. And so I think for folks to know that love isn't something you reach. Love is something that's in you, that's inherent. I really, mm -hmm. I really do associate it with pleasure. And I think that 
if we prioritize pleasure in our lives, mm-hmm. that self-love blossoms. If we prioritize pleasure in our life, our self-love blossoms. Thanks again so much for coming on. So in the show notes, you're very public in your personas. I'm going to put your social medias and, of course, Girl Boner and the links to the book. And this will probably be released about mid-September. So are there any specific offerings, workshops, things you have coming up you want our listeners to know about? Well, mid-September is great because our book releases on September 14th. If folks enjoy the book or they want to learn more about it, they can search mm. for or use the hashtag with pleasure book, especially on Instagram, but on any platform. I look forward to our listeners reading the book with pleasure, with pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Yes, thank you both so much again for coming on to the show. Take care. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 